The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to netsuite.com slash earnings right now. netsuite.com slash earnings. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This podcast has some of our favorite interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor along with Romaine Bostic and Caroline Hyde. What'd you miss? It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. Everyone loved all of our lumber craze conversation, so we circled back with Stinson Dean, Deacon Lumber Company CEO and Lumber Market Cash and Futures Trader, who we spoke with about a month ago. It looks like things are starting to cool off a bit in the market. So we asked Stinson what has fundamentally changed since the last time we spoke. Yeah, so I, I think we're in a, another market standoff. We kind of had buyers versus sellers in February and March, and the sawmills won that standoff clearly, and the, the market ripped higher. And I think we're kind of back in that kind of standoff. So what's different between then and now, and the things that I've observed the big builders are actually pushing back. The rhetoric is, mm. it, it's not so much price, it's just they don't have confidence in the supply. So they're gonna dial back what they're gonna sell. They're turning away home buyers. No one's questioning demand. Demand is clearly there, but we're just running into capacity constraints. Um, so that's different. Um, the, for me, the May futures contract, the way it expired was kind of, boring like yeah. if if folks had a huge need for prompt wood and they had to have it now like we experienced up to that expiration that contract would have shot up because it, it offers buyers a chance for physical delivery and it was flat to weak and we even saw a carry uh towards the end of that uh and the spread and then lastly if you look at the spread and I, I talked about this last time i was on that term yeah. structure it's not always a leading indicator it's, you know, it could take a while to adjust, but it's, it's as a hedger, it's what I look at. Right. And flat price in the last, what, two or three days, this has gone limit, limit, limit off this bounce. Right. We'll, we'll see if it's a dead cat bounce. I don't know. But the spread has stayed stagnant right. to, even to even lower. We have so that July, September uh, future spread chart, and you can see on there that, uh, that it hasn't gone anywhere. Right. It rallied. Uh, during the, the the big flat price rally that we yeah. all know about but now this most recent rally it's not really reacting to it so to me that's just something that's different than the than the previous rally we've had uh, and um, then uh, one more big point is the big box stores mm -hmm. have have taken a lot of supply uh and th those the, the big box buy direct and they don't see the open market and they do not supply single family home builders so the wood that's that's on the shelves at home depot does not go to build homes for the large part. Uh, so that that their seasonal you know, DIY shoulder carry demand is peaking. Hmm. So I expect to see more wood that was going direct to big box stores get back on the open market 
uh, and, and ultimately supply single-family homes. A month or so ago, a lot of people were also talking, uh, since in here, about uh, the stumpage fees. And I guess the idea here that you're not really seeing the price, I guess, at the root, uh, uh, forgive the pun, uh, going up as much as you're seeing, of course, the end product. Yeah, so the stumpage price of U.S. southern trees has been stagnant to flat, hasn't risen with uh, lumber prices, but that's because we don't use those trees to build homes. The stumpage price, and there's a big story here, the stumpage price in Canada uh, does increase, and it's in lockstep with the price of lumber, and it's lagged by three to six months. So what we're going to see the second half of the year is Canadian sawmills, their break-evens are going to go up, I think, $100 per thousand. And if there's still a tariff, which was announced just before we went on air, that they're looking at doubling it, and this is a from what I understand, a procedural review, it wasn't a, a new initiative, but now they're reviewing potentially doubling these tariffs. So we're looking at break-even prices going up to $200 per thousand more for hmm. the second half, second half of the year. So more pressures to bring the floor higher because I'm as big of a bull as they come. I'm higher for longer. The question to me is just how, where is the new normal? And the longer we go at higher prices, we normalize it and that floor goes higher and higher. So there's just going to be so, upward cost pressures the second half of the year. So there's another factor at, uh, that seems to be at play, which is there might be signs that this sort of like torrid U.S. housing market, as measured in different ways, is slowing down a little bit. We've seen new home sales uh, actually come in a fair bit uh, weaker than expected. We've seen talk, um, we talked to Ali Wolf recently, who pointed out that the home builders themselves throttling their uh, demand, their builds a little bit for all kinds of reasons, maybe shortage of space, pushing back, just slowing down. So on the, you know, you've been, we've been talking about the supply side. Is the demand side going to ease up a little bit and then create a little bit more breathing room here? Uh, yeah, Ali would know better than I would, but I suspect yes. I mean, we're just hitting a capacity constraint. I don't think that's bearish, right. but it's not, it's, it's not bullish, and there's a difference. Um, so I, I do think you know, home builders are going to have a choice. Do I, do I sell dirt and try to guess on what that sale price needs to be and hope my input costs later on are profitable? I don't think they're willing to do that at an aggressive scale. So just, there's just going to be a limit on demand, and that, will, that stagnation potentially could give the supply chain a chance to catch up. And what does that mean, though, for some of the folks who have been trying to trade this market, uh, Stenson? I mean, a lot of folks still betting on the idea that if the high price don't necessarily continue, they'll at least stay high and persist. Yeah, so it, it, it goes to what's happening right now. So the, the sawmills are really sold out into mid-June on a very strong uh, forward sale or, or order file. So so the second quarter is is done. Like these mills have had a great second quarter. Um, there's only a couple of weeks left that they have to sell production. Um, shipping has improved drastically. We didn't have the, the big winter storm that slowed down rail. So I think you're going to see more shipments than sales uh, in the second quarter, which which will reduce inventories. Um, but the, for me, the thesis of higher for longer, mm -hmm. the break evens are going up for these mills. Like they won't have a choice, but to keep prices elevated, I think above $600 to make any money. Uh, and then the fact that we've been selling and we're just now seeing a pushback from builders at $1,700 lumber. That's, and that's FOB Canada. That, there's $100 freight added onto that. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, all the, all the middlemen who touched that. So it tells me 
you know, it took $1,700. So potentially we could be seeing some equilibrium and some pushback on the demand side. Well, we would all love to own a thousand dollar lumber at this point, which is just yeah. the wildest thing to think about. But that floor every day goes higher and higher as we normalize these high prices. We also caught up with another What'd You Miss regular, Jill Carlson, principal at Slow Ventures and co-founder of the Open Money Initiative to discuss the last few wild weeks for crypto. Jill has seen a million of these crypto cycles already, and it goes straight up and then it goes straight back down. So we started by asking Jill if she thinks this particular cycle is over. Look, yeah, to a degree, easy come, easy go. I want to take you back. I came on this show at the beginning of January and we talked about the Bitcoin rally that was happening. Right. And we talked about how I talked about how I thought that it was very healthy price action. Yeah. It seemed to be all institutionally driven. And look, I think that that narrative still holds true. What happened in the interim was that Elon Musk came in on January 29th, tweeted out about Bitcoin and brought in the hordes of retail investors. And when you have retail and when you have leverage in the system, you're going to get these types of moves. And it's no coincidence that we're now back at roughly the same price that we were in mid-January before Elon Musk got involved and, and brought in all of this retail interest. Here we are. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, great point, Jill. I am curious, though. I mean, one aspect of this that a lot of people did talk about uh, was the idea that companies were putting this on the balance sheet. That had sort of been a catalyst uh, for some of the rally that we've seen this year. And then, of course, with, I guess, I don't know what you call it, confusion or whatever, uh, with regards to whether Tesla is still holding or not. I am curious as to whether that side of the equation is still holding. Are, you, are we still anticipating uh, that the companies out there uh, are still considering using this as a balance sheet asset? Look, yes, I mean, confusion is definitely the right word when it comes to Tesla and whatever is going on there. So I won't even try to speak to that. I think that there's probably a dynamic around them being classified as an ESG stock. I think there's probably dynamics with the government subsidies that they have to be dependent on uh, and needing to maintain their position as an environmental play, all of that. But the reality is, is institutions are still buying Bitcoin. If you look at the data from yesterday, OTC desks had their biggest outflow, meaning hmm. institutions buying, that they've seen in three or four months. And that, to me, indicates that institutions are still coming in and buying the dip. I do think that there is a real dynamic here and a real sentiment shift around Bitcoin and proof-of-work tokens uh, that you know there is this environmental concern, and that affects sentiment. Sentiment has a real impact on markets and will have a real impact on new decisions by corporate treasuries, by institutions, certainly by retail investors as to what to be involved in. And there is still a reckoning that has to happen around that. But the narrative around institutions buying does seem to be holding. Okay, so, you know, Elon Musk aside, and this is something that I've always found like a little like been uncomfortable with your industry. Uh, it seems to me that every time there's a bull market, people in the crypto space start plugging thousands of coins. We recently interviewed Hayden Adams, the uh, founder of Uniswap. 2,000 yeah. coins a day, he said, are being added to the Uniswap protocol. To, in three different people this week made meme coins based on me that traded on PancakeSwap. Does this, is this inevitable thing, which is that as the price goes up, suddenly, even though there's only 21 million Bitcoins, people just flood the market with supply, ultimately sort of like creating some weight on the market overall? Look, I, I, 
I don't think that that is a fair characterization, Joe, actually, because I don't think that it's meme <laughs> coins taking the air out of the room uh, when it comes to Bitcoin. Sure, maybe a little bit to a degree on the on the edges around, you know, the retail market participants. But that's not what right. is, you know, that's not comparable supply. Right. But uh, flooding I, the market. just to push back for a second, one of there's all kinds of different reasons people want to buy Bitcoin. One reason is because they want to buy an asset that's going up really fast and there's no principle or tech or anything behind it other than number go up. And so when numbers go up even faster on all this other stuff flooding to market at the margins, does that take away some of the uh, the uh, enthusiastic fervor to buy? At the margins, yes, I, okay. I will grant you that. I think, though, that it takes air out of the room around Dogecoin much more so than it does the likes of Bitcoin or Ethereum. And look, I mean, let's not confuse the long tail of meme coins with the plethora of other assets that we're now seeing the real utility around, right. whether it's experimentation with proof of stake systems, less energy intensive systems. We're seeing real market demand for these types of alternatives now for the first time. When do we and I think that that's a very real, yeah. exciting development. Well, but it seems like people within your industry, the, the people who understand it, understand that point that you just made, Jill. For a lot of the people who are coming into this new, there's still that cloud here. And you mentioned Doge and Joe mentioned the 2000 coin being created here. That creates a cloud here, Jill. And I'm curious as to when you anticipate that your industry is really going to be able to kind of either put that cloud behind you or get rid of it or whatever the analogy is. You're right. I mean, today it's very much still a matter of doing your own research. And, you know, I think one heuristic is if the coin is named after a dog or maybe your favorite <laughs> news anchor, probably don't invest wow. in it. Wow. What? Wow. No, I agree. Don't, don't do it. Okay, keep going. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, I, I think if you look back at the nascent days of any market, it's a matter of people doing their own research. Every market in its earliest days, going back to the stock market, even the pink sheets days more recently. Um, you know, you don't need to go back as far as tulips. You look at the development of market, it goes through this period where there are grifters and scammers and people looking to make a quick buck. And it's just a matter of time and market maturity and education. Let me ask you one more question. We've had the energy debate. We've talked about it forever. The other way that crypto consumes real, real resources is uh, chips. And in China already, you can't buy hard drives because of Chia mining and Filecoin mining and so forth. Is that still an issue? I mean, there's like, it's just pretty capital intensive stuff that all these uh, new coins are launching into. Yeah, I mean, the, the proof of space and time that, that Chia uses, for example, I think is a great example of a more environmentally friendly version of, of what Bitcoin tries to achieve. Certainly, it might still be capital intensive, yeah. but in order to secure these networks, you know, they're economically incentivized networks, you have to have that capital outlay in some way, shape or form, right. whether that's, again, through the proof of space and time, whether that's through stake, whatever it is. Personally, I'm very excited about the alternative of being able to use yeah. space as opposed to to compute, which is, again, right. obviously less energy intensive. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. 
Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Now, Caroline had an exclusive interview with Chevron CEO Mike Wirth right after the executive faced a major rebuke from his shareholders. At Chevron's annual investor day, 61% of the oil giant's investors voted to back a proposal to reduce emissions from the company's customers over the recommendations of the board, which had urged shareholders to reject it. And Caroline started by asking the CEO what he made of the vote and of the intention of the shareholders. Uh, you know, on the vote, uh, look, across our society and, and among all stakeholders, interest in, in these issues has, has never been higher. And I think the, the vote reflects that. It's, it's part of an evolving approach to a lower carbon future. Uh, shareholders want us to succeed. Uh, what matters is how we respond to these challenges together. And so uh, we're, we're working on reducing the emissions of our products as they're used by our customers. We're offering uh, renewable diesel, renewable natural gas, renewable uh, base oils, and uh, and we're working to, on things like sustainable aviation fuel and, and hydrogen. Uh, and so we, we have emissions in our own operations that we're working to bring down and making very good progress. But then also society needs energy. We're an energy company that provides it. And we're working on the technologies and the solutions to uh, work across, particularly the more difficult parts of the economy, uh, to find ways to help bring these emissions down. So this is a step on that journey. I think that's so important to remind people that, of course, you know, many of us want to see emissions come down, but many of us also want our light switches to work, our air conditioning to work, and, and our energies to still run fr freely. But I'm, I'm interested in whether you feel kind of surprised by the strength of investor focus on this, because I know you're a man who wants to promise them returns. Investors want the best of all worlds. They want to see profitability come from you, bigger returns. But are you surprised by how much they also really want to focus in on the ESG part of the equation? Well, I think the rate of change on ESG has been, um, you know, has been dramatic. Uh, there were uh, times not too many years ago where it came up infrequently in discussions with investors. Today, it comes up in every discussion. And oftentimes, it's the, the, the first thing that comes up in a conversation. So uh, I'm not surprised that it's high on their minds. Uh, I meet with investors all year long, and, uh, and this has been a, a, a regular topic. Uh, that we've been hearing about. And, uh, and, and you're right, investors do want to see uh, higher returns. Our industry is one that has not been in favor with investors because uh, our returns haven't been as strong as they historically were. And, uh, and so we've got work to do. It's why I uh, really talk to our people about just four words, higher returns, lower carbon. We need to do both of those. When I talk to investors about that, they say, that's exactly right. You're hearing what we're saying. That's what we expect. And that's what we're committed to. Of course, today was rather extraordinary because ExxonMobil was taken on by a tiny activist investor and has lost two board seats, if not three, to them. It would seem that Shell is also being ordered to slash their own emissions via a court as well over in the Netherlands. Do you worry that this will go to the courts as well, not just your annual general meetings? Well, I, I've been in a board meeting after our annual meeting, so I haven't seen all the, the developments that have occurred today. Uh, but, uh, you know, th this is a very active environment that we find ourselves in. Uh, there are uh, lawsuits that have been fired on filed on various aspects of climate around the world. 
And uh, we don't believe that's a, a, a fruitful way to engage in dialogue on this issue. We think that they uh, generally uh, distract uh, companies from uh, the real important work, which is working on technologies, working on progress and taking actions. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, uh, you know, the, the lawsuits haven't really proven to have much merit. And, and I, I don't know how the, the, the suit in the Netherlands today will play out. But uh, we look for constructive engagement. We look for uh, to be challenged and, and we're taking action and we intend to take more action. To be challenged by activist investors in particular, how much do you think there are, are they a threat to the business model in general, to, to a joined up business model that you provide in terms of oil and gas? Well, I think activist investors, other investors, they have a, they, they want to be heard. They have a point of view. And, um, and, and look, we, we engage, as I said earlier, with our uh, investors all year long. And so um, we're listening, we're engaging, uh, we're, we're as transparent as we can be. We just issued a, uh, a very lengthy report uh, on climate change and, and our company's um, uh, resilience in a variety of scenarios. We did an analysis under uh, very aggressive carbon reduction scenarios to look at how our company would fare under those. And so uh, investors of all types are, 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 you know, focused on this as we are. And so that's part of, uh, it's part of the environment today for companies that are providers of energy. And, uh, and I believe uh, our industry is part of the solution. We have the technical capability, the project management capability, the engineering uh, uh, acumen, uh, and the, the, the financial capacity to be part of the solution. And I think companies across our industry are in fact working very hard on that, uh, taking different approaches, but that's really where we should all be focused is uh, how do we find uh, ways to make progress on this as opposed to find ways to uh, engage in, in, in conflict. Talking of progress, I mean, your share price has progressed significantly up, I mean, what, 55% since the lows back in October. You have been able to be being returns in that respect. The fundamentals of the oil business in particular have improved. Prices have rebounded. I'm, I'm interested in, as you do double down on your investments, as you say, as you want to talk about perhaps finding beneficial ways to dig in on hydrogen. I know that that's an area that you feel you've got a unique advantage in, for example, and teaming up with certain companies there. How do you also return to the investor base? Because I know that's something you want to look on. And, and investors, analysts, Wells Fargo, for example, trying to say when you might start doing share buybacks. Is that on the agenda? Well, there's a balance here. Uh, I said earlier that, that our objective is to deliver higher returns and, and lower carbon, and we have to do both. Uh, we can't only do things that are good for shareholders and ignore uh, sustainability in the environment. That won't last. Uh, and likewise, if all we do is focus on things that are good for the environment and we don't respond to shareholders' desire to see a return, that's not sustainable either. And so we really have to do both. That has been our focus uh, for quite some time. And uh, we've increased our dividend uh, for 34 uh, consecutive years. We came into this downturn with the strongest balance sheet in the industry and we've emerged with the strongest balance sheet. We were able to do an acquisition to strengthen our portfolio uh, during this downturn. And uh, we've repurchased shares 13 of the last 17 years because we've been very disciplined with, with capital and we've had the, the cash to return to shareholders via that. So our financial priorities have remained the same. Uh, we've been consistent, prepared, and uh, adaptive uh, as we've faced a very dynamic environment. And I think those are attributes that make a company strong and, and it's what uh, rewards shareholders. And so uh, we, we need to do both and we intend to do both. You've intended to do both. You haven't set yourself 
exact targets in terms of limiting emissions, but you have outlined how you're going to invest in getting there and lowering carbon, as you say, that key focus of the business. But can you do that at the same time as perhaps giving well, share buybacks as soon as 2022? Well, we actually have set targets to reduce emissions. We've set uh, targets to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions from upstream oil, from gas, from methane, from flaring. We achieved our 2023 targets early. We reset uh, targets for 2028, uh, which is the next Paris stock take. It's tied to my compensation, the compensation of our employees. Uh, so we are setting targets. We are reducing emissions in, uh, in our operations. And uh, you know, we, we do need to do it all. It's, it's not necessarily simple. Uh, and, and finding that balance, different people have different opinions about where that is. And that's really where a lot of this dialogue comes is at what pace uh, should we reinvest in our core business? At what pace should we reinvest in energy transition? At what pace should we return cash to shareholders? And, uh, and, and there's, there's judgment and there's balance in there. And, uh, and that's, the, uh, you know, that's the, the world that we're navigating. And it's why this engagement with shareholders is so important. Will you continue to talk to activists such as Follow This? What are your words to them if, if they're listening? Well, we, we had a, a proposal from Follow This today, and um, uh, it, it received a lot of uh, shareholder support. And, uh, and look, they, they, they closed their presentation to us as, we're with you, we want you to be successful. And so uh, I think we need to uh, engage with all stakeholders and, uh, and understand their points of view. Uh, when I do that, I find that there is more common ground uh, than people might think before you walk into the room. And, and just because we can't agree on everything doesn't mean we can't agree on anything. And, and so we often find that there's a lot that we do agree on, and then we can talk about the things where we still have different points of view, but that's how you make progress. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Then we caught up with Alex Williams, a research analyst at Employ America, to talk about his recent guest post on the Odd Lots blog titled, The Economy is Booming. Why don't firms believe it? We talked about bottlenecks literally every day. We keep discovering more and more of them. And it seems like the answer is for companies to invest more, build out supply chains, and expand their capacity. So we asked Alex what would stop them from doing that. So the first problem is that new capacity takes a long time to come online from the point at which you decide to invest. And if firms are seeing these high prices as transitory or temporary shortages as the economy works itself out, they may not think that it's worth their while to pull new capacity together in order to service them. By the time these you know, investments are up and running, these price hikes may have passed. And so 
the memory of the long period of low demand from right. 2008 after, until, I mean, you know, recently, very recently, um, really speaks to the sense that there's no guarantee that buyers will be there in the long term. So firms are taking sort of a wait and see approach to investment. Is there a policy answer, therefore, mm. to help these such companies forget the long period from 2008 to here and remember that actually that sort of demand might be sustained and investment cycles should be, you know, re-looked at? So there is some reason to be optimistic because uh, just today, the manufacturer's shipments, inventories and orders uh, investment measure, if you exclude defense and aircraft, has finally passed the high point that it hit in 2000, um, showing that there is beginning to be some investment by these firms. But for the kind of wide scale overhaul that we need, there needs to be an understanding that demand will be there, whether through income supports, through a willingness to let wages rise, through uh, you know sort of an expansionary fiscal policy stance towards an investment and infrastructure build out. All of these will help guarantee that demand will be there to validate these investments. When you talk about, Alex, uh, the idea here of uh, a lot of the government spending, we have obviously uh, a couple of big proposals here by the Biden administration. The selling point, it's a relatively salient one is the idea that this is an investment rather than just spending the idea that at some point in the future this sort of uh, pays us back with regards to GDP growth job growth etc here how do you how are we able to sort of make that link and make that link in a way that I guess is valid well I think that there's almost no way not to make that link because in a capitalist economy all investment is ultimately oriented towards producing consumer goods and towards servicing consumption. While it might be politically good to frame things as strictly investment focused in something like an infrastructure plan, even just ensuring that, you know, poorer Americans are taking home more in their paychecks and seeing higher wages will by itself ensure that more investment is brought online. What about interest rate hikes to just slow it down? I mean, sure, like, you know, maybe we can hope businesses invest more and expand and, you know, build out that capacity and ease out these bottlenecks. But is there like a response to just why don't we tap the brakes and just ease the bottlenecks? So the trouble with that is, is we're already seeing bottlenecks in a variety of goods. If we raise rates, then it will cost more to make the investments in capacity ah. that we would need to alleviate those bottlenecks. If we raise rates in an attempt to shut demand down, in an attempt to you know, close off these bottlenecks from opening, you're essentially leaving a whole lot of investment, a whole lot of GDP growth, and a whole lot of employment growth and improvement in employment conditions on the table just to avoid some transitory price spikes. Alex, how much is an investor base a prob help mm. or a hindrance here? Because how much do the investors want to see returns in terms of share buybacks, capital put to work in terms of putting lining their pockets? Or how much are you seeing these longer term investors decide that, you know, investment's really the way to go and they're seeing the signs that they need to meet demand? I think part of the trick to that is recognizing that a lot of the crop of managers and a lot of the crop of people within these companies who would be making these investment decisions have come up in a world that has really been structured over the past 10 years by systematically low demand. Ah. For some of the younger folks, there's no muscle memory there for how to do this. And for some of the older folks, 
the memory of the 1970s looms larger than the memory of the 1990s, and so they may remain a little uh, hesitant as well. So we're on the precipice, Alex, here of a, a great deal of change. I guess some of it has already sort of taken place or started to take place uh, because of the COVID crisis. Uh, in our previous show, we uh, talked with a couple of investors in Exxon who talked about uh, the recent victory to get someone appointed to that board uh, who, I guess, takes a different approach to climate change and wants to push this company in a in a direction, I guess, that uh, they sort of address some of the climate change issues. This sort of dovetails, I think, quite succinctly with what we're trying to deal with and how we get this economy back up and running and whether we look at the short-term effects or the longer-term effects, Alex. How do you sort of make the case here for making those longer-term uh, changes? So I think the trick is adapting to ecological constraints and building out a more climate-conscious capital stock is going to require an incredible volume of investment. And the thing is, is that that investment creates jobs, which creates a boom, which creates a need for further investment. The classic Keynesian cycle is something that policymakers can really lean on to not only justify investments in long-term sustainability, but show how the second order effects of those investments justify the investments themselves all on their own in terms of an increased standard of living, better employment, and higher consumer demand. So we got, uh, obviously, more news today on the sort of stimulus infrastructure that uh, theoretically the White House uh, is going to push forward. Is this, is this right? Is this the right level in your view? And is this the kind of policy that could uh, maintain sustained effective demand such that the muscle memory of corporate America changes? I think that there is a lot to be praised in the stimulus package. I think that some of it is a little bit undercut by their lack of willingness to ensure that the uh, added benefits to unemployment insurance aren't being paid out to states that are rejecting them because those are such an easy source mm. of demand in addition to the government as a source of investment. So I think it's really uh, imperative that you know we match both sides of this and increase demand alongside increasing investment as always more might be better in bringing out uh sort of these long dormant impulses to invest in capacity and that's it for what you missed this week if you like the show make sure to subscribe and rate us at apple podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts you can catch our show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great week. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Brought to you by Sherm, a better workplace, a better world.